doing today? That was miserable. I'm going to try this one more time because I am a high energy guy. Okay. How are you guys doing today? Amen. Well, we're going to talk about the Grand Canyon today. Has anyone ever been to the Grand Canyon? Ah, show of hands. I have some people, some of my constituents here have been to the big crack in the ground. Now, I want to let you know from the outset of this message, I will not be able to answer every single question that you have about the Grand Canyon in 45 to 55 minutes. It's not going to happen, okay? But I will stick around afterwards if anyone has any questions, anything you want to talk about. I'm here. I'm not going to split quickly. I'll be here. To preface this message, I, now catch my heart, am not a scientist. Someone's thinking, then why did they bring him here? Because I do have two master's degrees. I have a master's of theological studies and a master's of Christian apologetics. And in the three and a half years time I spent at Veritas Evangelical Seminary, I spent a lot of time in the research department of creation science. This whole message here, this presentation this morning, comes naturally out of eight days of research that I was blessed to be chosen to go to last July. I spent eight straight days in the canyon, not observing from far, but down in the canyon, rafting through the Colorado River, sleeping on the banks, uh, picking scorpions off of friends. I'm not joking, for real. Uh, They glow in the dark if you shine a UV light on them. Oh, you got to go to the canyon. It's so cool. It's so cool. But uh, we were blessed to have not one, but two brilliant geologists on that trip. We had Dr. John Whitmore from Cedarville, and we had Dr. Andrew Snellings from Australia. And so we were just blessed to have these guys there. They're brilliant, brilliant geologists. I learned so much there. And I said, Lord, because you brought me here, I want to share with the body of Christ. Not some kind of highfalutin academic presentation where only doctors and double doctors sit around and go, mm, yes, carbon dating, mm, yes. Mabidium strontium, mm, this, the method. I, I wanted to bring it to the body of Christ. And so, in the, in the canyon, on about the fourth day, I had a real deep moment where I was in my devos and sitting on a sandbank, and I said, Lord, whatever you want me to do with this time here, I'll do it for your glory. And so, I put this presentation together, and I want to let you guys know that I will do this presentation at any church, at any time, free of charge, If you know a venue or a youth event or anything where you think people might enjoy this or might be benefited or just might get some kind of kick out of what a wacko I am, I'll be there. Give me their information or I can give you mine. And so without further ado, let's let's get into this. The Grand Canyon evidence for a young earth. Now, I put a question mark on there, didn't I? Because I want to let you know, if you didn't know this yet, let me tell you now. Not everyone in America is a young earth creation scientist. Did you guys know that? Do you know that many people believe that the universe is billions, and they, when, they, when they say it, there's this sanctimonious term that, that, that comes with the tone over their voice, billions of years old. Uh, the cosmos, billions of years ago, nothing exploded into everything we see. Which just always made me think, Julia Andrews, in The Sound of Music, I think she nailed it theologically. Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. And I don't think she had any degrees, did she? She was a good scientist. The Grand Canyon is, in my opinion, some of the absolute, positively best evidence for a young Earth and for creation. And hopefully we'll get through this without spending too much time. You see, as one enters the Grand Canyon, one thing is perfectly clear, guys. You are not in Kansas anymore. Okay? Not a lot of flat land out there in Arizona. No, this is some mountainous, interesting stuff. I want to give you guys a couple quick facts just as we jump in. Gotta love the iPad. It likes to get ahead. The Grand Canyon ranges from 4 to 18 miles wide. Yes, that's not a typo. 4 to 18 miles wide. Now, everyone thinks it's just that little tiny bottom crack where the Colorado River is flowing through it. No, 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 that's not the Grand Canyon proper. 
The Grand Canyon itself, the dugout, humongous, blown out crack in the ground that runs for several hundred miles, can be anywhere from four to 18 miles wide. That is one big hole in the earth. At its deepest point, it is over a mile deep. In fact, the canyon is so large, it can actually be seen from our own moon. Interesting facts. You can see the Grand Canyon from the moon. It is that immense, it's that wide, it's that long. The elevation drop through which we traveled was over a thousand feet. And I got to tell you, there were some days where you could actually feel the descent as you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the crust of the earth. And this is why the Grand Canyon offers such amazing white water rafting. Yes, on my eight days of research, I have to tell you, I was blessed at some of the most awesome, crazy, fast, white water rapid rafting in the continental U.S. You guessed it. The Grand Canyon offers you the best. Fastest rapid? 28 miles per hour. Now look, if you don't know what 28 miles per hour is on water, you haven't been going fast enough. 28 miles an hour, which is 17 seconds of sheer crazy fast fun. Okay? Try and say that that five times fast. You go bombing through some of these runs. The entire raft that we were on just would go, it would just submerge. And then reemerge. And just in case you were wondering, how cold is the Colorado River? Does anyone know? 41 degrees in the Marble Canyon, the beginning of the, of, the, of, the, of the Grand Canyon. And it warms up, catch this, one whole awesome degree every 30 miles. And so on day two, I was taking a 42-degree bath in the Colorado River thinking, why am I here? And people are sitting there. I was watching guys soap up on the bank, and I'm thinking, what a bunch of punks. Until I submerged myself to my knee. It's cold. It's cold. It's really cold. And so there's a quick shot for you guys. That is a shot of the Grand Canyon. That's a satellite photo from space. It is one big crack. Now, look, nowhere else on planet Earth is so much geology packed into such a relatively confined space And because the canyon has been so deeply cut into the earth, it exposes a representative, detailed strata sequence spanning much of the earth's history. And so you get a look at what has gone down throughout the ages of time, if you would. Here is just quickly uh, a cutout of the Grand Canyon. And I want to just tell you quickly the layers of the canyon. I don't expect anyone to remember this, but I want to tell you for a reason. Your uppermost layer there is what's known as the Kaibab limestone. Underneath of it is the Torweep. Underneath is the Coconino sandstone. Under that is Hermit Shale. Under that layer is what's known as the Supai Group. Now, Supai Group is cool because it's actually a bunch of different conglomerate layers together, and they've given it one name. Under that is one of the most important layers known as the Red Wall Limestone. Under that is a less significant layer called the Temple Butte. Now, quick fact about the Temple Butte. It comes and goes throughout the canyon. It's not found consistently. It's a very thin layer, relatively speaking to the rest of the layers, and it comes and it goes. But it is there. We did, we did explore some of it. It was on some of my trip. Under that is the Muav sandstone. Under the Muav is the Bright Angel Shale, in my opinion, one of the most pretty layers. On the screen, you'll see it represented as tan. Uh, it's actually quite purple. It's a purple... Uh, Iridescent in many places, it refracts light, it's really very beautiful shale. Uh, It's got a high oil content from where you get the blue purples in it. And under that is known as the Tapit Sandstone, that is the lower most layer of the Grand Canyon. Under that you're going to find something very different structurally. It would be known as the Crystalline Basement Rocks. And everything is a very hard metamorphic, does everyone know what metamorphic rock is? rock that has been changed by heat and pressure. And what's very different is that rocks underneath the Tapit sandstone are like this. They're slanted. And they don't all slant the same way. Some slant this way, some slant this way. Whereas the layers of the Grand Canyon are very, very uniform and very, very horizontally flat. 
Now, very quick, you think to yourself, how in the world could I ever memorize these layers of the Grand Canyon? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. There's a little tiny acronym that helps us to remember this, and it helps us to remember something about God's Word. Ready? We said Kaibab, Torah Weep, Coconino, Hermit, Supai, Red Wall, Temple Butte, Moav, Bright Angel, Tapitz. Know that catastrophe has stratified rock teaching men biblical truths. That's how you remember the layers of the Grand Canyon. So look, as I said before, the layers threat the Grand Canyon. Um, it's, it's painfully obvious. You do not have to be a scientist to see this. If you were to go to the canyon, you'd see it empirically with your own two eyes. The most obvious feature of the canyon is its horizontal layers, as if they were like pancakes, stacked up very nicely, laid right on top of one another, like they've been stacked that way, if you would. Cold fingers, the iPad doesn't respond to them. You can actually see visible color change in one specific layer of strata to the next. Now, why do I say layers of strata? Because I'm not just talking about different groups, like you go from the Coconino and you go down to the Hermit. I'm not saying that. I'm saying within one layer of rock formation, within the Coconino sandstone, you can see different layers of strata, different visible color changes. They're easy to see. They're all throughout the canyon. And, and there's many fossils within all of these layers. And it's true that they line up in accordance with the geological column as found in modern science textbook, but there's a reason they do, because that's the way scientists have found them, so that's the way they've, that's the way they've put them in science books. It's, it's not because they're billions and billions of years old. There's a different reason. Uh, I believe with many other creation scientists that the Grand Canyon is not just good evidence, guys. It is great evidence for not only Creation Week, but for the flood day of Noah. And I think that that's what the Grand Canyon is the best evidence of. It shows us a picture, if you would. It cuts into the window of time and tells us a lot about God's creative acts and how he did it. But it, it, it's also, I believe, the best evidence on planet Earth for a global, not a local, a global flood. And I will hope to explain a little bit of that. Um, one thing I want to really remind us of, and it's a very important one, no one was there, right? People say it all the time. Well, we believe that 1.4 billion years ago, I like Ken Ham, I like how he handles it. Were, were you there? Was anyone there you know? Were any of your ancestors there? Did they email you or text you or write you a letter throughout the eons of time? Well, you see, well, none of us were there. Science, by definition, is that which can be demonstrated, tested, and repeated under a set of circumstances. That's called observation science. But origin science is something that, in all honesty, science is guessing at, because no one was there. However, i got to really tell you one thing. Uh, my Heavenly Father was there. The Lord was there, guys. And so, as a Christian... And look, don't anyone ever tell you that your, your faith is blind and in a God you can't see or touch or have a relationship with, because that's just not true. Because Jesus Christ left the heavenly realm. He took upon himself a body of flesh. He incarnated. He came down, stepping down. He condescended to mankind. Love walked among us. And he told Philip, and it was clear as day, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And what we have is the wonderful eyewitness testimony of all the apostles who did see Jesus. And so it's not true. We do not have a blind faith. I don't even like that word. We have a faith that is well-founded. And I believe that God always tells us the truth. Amen? There's nothing in there that's cryptic or hard to figure out. He always tells us the truth. And you know, it's funny that a lot of people today will read Genesis 1 and 2 and insert all these different ideas in there when it's pretty literally easy to see that it really appears without pretense or prompt that he did it in six days. I mean, that's what it says, right? And so I know you guys are all very well fed the Bible here. Pastor Joe uh, is a good, close, personal friend. I know he, he teaches you the word. But for a moment, just humor me. So we can jump back throughout Creation Week. It's going to be brief. It's 
going to go over it because I want to go over it with a little bit of scriptural geology backing it. Day one, we know that God created the heavens and the earth, right? It's as much as we have to talk about day one. Day two, we'll skip. We'll jump right to what I like and what I find really interesting on day three. You see, God forms the dry land. And in Hebrew, it literally reads, let the dry land appear. Let the dry land appear. We believe that God did this as he gathered the waters into their place and made the dry land appear. Young earth creationists believe that this would have involved reshaping and uplifting of the rocky exterior from underneath the waters of the planet, forming many mountains and valleys right there on day three. If you read that, it literally in Hebrew says land. It doesn't say lands or land masses. It says land. Has anyone ever heard of the theory of Pangea? Pangea is a good theory. Not a problem with it at all. I know a lot of young earth creationists, scientists who have a hard time with it. I don't have it at all. Pangea literally in Greek means all land. Pangea. Like all the earth. All earth. That's what it means. Uh, there's also a leading theory that before Pangea would have actually been Rodinium, which had been an even bigger land mass that when it split off, you would have had the continents. Now, you don't need to be a genius to realize if you look at all the continents and use a little bit of your imagination, they do seem to line up, don't they? It's not far-fetched at all. It's not far-fetched. But that God had brought up the waters from underneath. Now look, after this geological upheaval, God put grass and trees upon the land which he had brought forth and It appears now that this land would be ready to support earth. I mean life. Uh, One quick interesting point before we jump out of creation week. The the dry land, as it would have come up from under the waters, an amazing amount of erosion would have taken place from that. Water, I mean, we're talking, imagine the size of the landmass coming up from underneath the waters. The water that would have rushed off of that surface would have actually probably created sedimentary rock right there, on day three. So where can you get sedimentary rock forms? I would say on the, on the third day of creation. As the land came up out of the waters, the waters come rushing off the surface and it would have absolutely scraped off. Now look, has anyone ever seen the damaging powers of water? All right? Oh no, it's, it, was a, it was a calm, peaceful process, right? Uh, calm and peaceful and flood never go together. If you've ever thought about that. I've never seen a tranquil flood rip and ravage through Texas. But there are Texans who would tell you from last year that there was nothing peaceful about it. Because as water flows, this is an amazing fact, as water flows, it gathers strength. And it will pick up things like, oh, I don't know, boulders and other rocks. And it basically creates a hydraulic jackhammering feature where those rocks get lifted up and down by the rushing water. And things just get absolutely obliterated, destroyed. Uh, Flood water is unbelievable. Has anyone uh, ever had the... Uh, I, I would call it pleasure, but it's not pleasurable. Has anyone ever seen a dam breached? Has anyone ever been there? I've, I've been there. I helped one person actually breach a dam on a farm. And you cannot believe how unbelievably fast. You don't need to do much to breach a dam. Put a crack in it. Work a little V-channel right into the middle of it. The water will do all the rest. The erosion, the erosion factor is unbelievable. It blows the whole thing out, and you've got a, a wiped-out spillway. In seconds, water is very, very damaging. Water can cut through limestone like that, right through it. And so that's, that's the effects of water. So as the landmass would have come up, as God brings that up from underneath the waters, because remember, on day one, the world, the world, the world is covered on water. It's completely covered by water. It's easy to see that in God's word. As the landmass would have come up, as rhodinium comes up, All kinds of sedimentary rock is formed right there on day three. It's going to be important later in the lecture. Uh, If you look very closely at what modern scientists call Precambrian rock, you will find it contains no fossils whatsoever. And I would agree as a creationist. There were no animals on day three, therefore there are no fossils in day three strata. Why would there be? Nothing was created on day three, so no, no fossils in day three strata. It's very logical if you think about it. Let's jump ahead to day five and six. The Lord creates marine, air, and land creatures, including man, on day six. 
On day seven, God rests from all of his creating. Therefore, creation week was complete. And it's important to note. God said everything was very good. Good? No. Very good. Every other day was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. And when everything was done, God said it was very good. Very important. The word very. It was very good. But Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and they bring a curse upon all mankind, the animal kingdom, and the earth, don't they? That which was basically paradise on earth becomes paradise lost, doesn't it? In short, death and suffering start to rapidly degrade the earth. Very, very rapidly. To a point within probably just a couple thousand years, it was a very, very wicked creation. And God said, the thoughts and intents of mankind is only evil. And God said, I'm going to flood the earth. Now, if you've never thought of this today, I wish you would think of it now. As beautiful as our planet is, and there are some beautiful places on planet earth. There really are. We are living in a junk heap compared to what our ancestors lived in before the flood. We're living in a junk heap. And you look around, and I'll tell you this much, everyone's in the Grand Canyon going, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh. And I won't forget it, Dr. Andrew Snelling turns around and he goes, the ooh and aahing is true, but it's the picture of judgment. That's what this is the great reminder of. Yeah, it's a canyon full of beauty, but I'll tell you this much, brothers and sisters, it's a canyon full of death. Reach down your hand and pick up a rock and flip it over. There's a good chance it has a fossil on it. There's the shadow of death over the entire canyon. There were more fossils there to find. All you need to do is want to find them. They're everywhere. Everywhere. If you are nuts about fossils, let me tell you something. Don't dig in your backyard. Go to the Grand Canyon. You can't keep them. They make you put them all back. But you can photo them and write in your journal and observe them with your own two eyes. In my opinion, the canyon speaks of the flood. Listen to it. Listen to the fact that the flood is global in, 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 in extent. Moses tells us in Genesis 7.17 that the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth. And the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth. And all the high hills under the whole earth were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward. And the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds and cattle and beasts. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. What do you think about that passage, guys? Does that sound like a calm, peaceful, tranquil flood to you? See, if it was a calm, peaceful, tranquil flood, you could have just got out a canoe, kind of waited it out. Or if it was in the, the Mesopotamian Valley, then so what? But it says that all of the mountains of the earth were covered by at least 15 cubits. Now, in case you were wondering what a cubit is, a cubit is from the tip of your finger. This is a Hebrew cubit. The tip of your finger to your elbow, if you are an average size, 5'8 to 5'9 male. You want to know what the size is? What's the size? Who said 18 inches? Ding, ding, ding. 18 inches. That's what it is. A foot and a half. So... Some people say, so what? Well, here's the so what. Do you know how high the highest mountains on planet Earth are? I don't know either, but it's pretty stinking high. <laughs> don't give me too much credit. I'm not that smart. But all I know is that some of them are several thousand feet high. So how much water is that? Several thousand feet of water. Plus a, plus a couple more feet. Even is at the highest point. And so the flood was global 
not local. What I want to do is I want to kind of identify what we believe the flood strata in the canyon walls to be. Now, the, the lowest one we have is what's known as, again, the Tapete Sandstone. Very important. It's also very breakable. I broke a couple pieces off and felt really bad about it. Because, you know, you're in a national park, you don't want to be breaking up the joint. But it does. It, it, it breaks quite easily in many pieces in places. And you, you can see that it's a composite. You can see that it's a sandstone. Well, you say, what is a sandstone? Well, a sandstone is a bunch of sand that got compressed into stone. It's very cryptic. Sandstone. See, this sedimentary rock layer sits directly below the first layer of what we would see as tilted and slanted directional rock. Um, underneath this layer, underneath the Tapete sandstone, you'll find no major fossil deposits of any kind. The only thing you'll find in a very few select areas, now look, very often, uh, Christian apologists are not honest enough. You're not going to find it with me. I will tell you the honest to goodness truth, and if I'm wrong on my factual evidence, please email me, speak to me. I am not above reproach. I want to be factually correct. There are a couple select places, and I mean a couple, of places below the Tapete Sandstone where you can find some fossilized algae. A couple specks here and there. And so, so you know, immediately someone who's an evolutionist will say, Oh, that's factually incorrect. There's... Four places where we found fossilized algae. All right, congratulations, there's some fossilized algae. Whoopity-doo, Basil, you got it. Okay? But we're talking about a couple places. There are no major deposits, no major fossil finds. The first place you find fossils in the Grand Canyon is in the Tapetes, and then working your way up, you can find them in every other layer. So what? Right? Someone's thinking, so what? Just be honest. Here's the big deal. At the beginning of the Great Flood, there would have been many upheavals, and such upheavals can actually tilt rock and erode them off. This is what we're talking about by the fact that there are slanted levels underneath. See, what we have is a horizontal flood layer sitting on top of an erosion surface. So it makes good sense that the beach sandstone is our first layer of flood-deposited rock. Why? Because it's the first flat layer. So let me very quickly, visually, during the flood, during the upheaval that God brought upon the earth, and again, we know it was not calm, we know it was not tranquil. It actually tells us there in the book of Genesis that the fountains of the deep broke forth. Anyone ever see the Mariana Trench? That's one big crack in the ocean. Really big. Uh, I think when God's word says the foundation you know, of the deep broke forth, that's what happened. Now, here's another little thing we don't think about because, you know, we've been told the flood story so many times in Sunday school that it becomes this kind of story to us. It's not a story. It's a factual, historical account. Subiquious waters sitting many, many, many hundreds of feet below the Earth's surface. Very quickly, let's take a little pull here. Cold or hot? <laughs> hot. Very, 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 very hot. Down, the closer you get to the molten core of the earth, the hotter things get, like magma that comes boiling up out of volcanoes. Hot. So when the foundations of the deep broke forth, I don't think water just bubbled up to the surface. I believe hot mud, water, steam, all kinds of things came ripping out to the earth's surface. It was catastrophe. It was catastrophic. It was, we, we, I don't think we can we fathom what it really looked like because no one's made the movie yet. And we're all waiting for the movies, right? I had the passion of Christ. Now I know what it was, how Jesus died. Oh, uh, now I get it. We're a very visually stimulated culture. Be the first person to say guilty. Me too. But your Bible is very visual. In your mind's eye, try and see that. And this is something probably spilling over from our hermeneutics class. When you read the Bible, don't read it with 21st century eyes. Read it with the eyes of the readers who read it first. Think of it. When your Bible is very descriptive, think of it. The foundations of the deep broke forth. Man, that is visual. That is, that is busted up. Something tectonic is going on. 
This was very catastrophic. With that much catastrophe and water flowing, what can happen is that rock layers that were already firmly laid down on day three would have been lifted up in places and shifted in other places. And as the surface waters come across, they can shear it right off. And that's how you'll get a, you'll get a horizontally slanted layer, but you can have something sitting perfectly flat and horizontal on top of it. Because some of, some of the rock layers were sheared off by this catastrophic explosion of water. Remember, our biblical framework tells us that there would have been very little, if any, fossil evidence in pre-Cambrian flood strata. And again, just to reiterate, below the Tapete sandstone, you will find no fossil evidence, besides those couple little patches of fossilized algae. And good, good science tells us that they could have got there different ways. They didn't have to be there on day three. They could have got there in different ways. Uh, in the Tapete sandstone, we find fossils galore. And so I want to share with you guys our first real big evidential argument against the billions and billions of years philosophy. Does that hand look familiar? Hang on a second. <laughs> White gold wedding ring, uh, gnarly broken pinky. It's mine. I want you guys to get the visual so that you just don't have to hear the verbal. Here between the Tapit sandstone, which is sitting on top of Nice, which is a metamorphic fossilized volcanic rock, the Tapit sandstone is sedimentary rock, whereas the Nice is a metamorphic rock layer, and they are butted up. They sit level, flat, right on top of each other. Now, the Nice is on a slant. You can see it very clearly. Below my thumb, you'll actually see a flow that is pitched and tilted to the right, whereas the tapetes is sitting perfectly still, and I put my finger right on a spot that I really like, because guess what my finger's right next to? It's a rock, stuck in the middle of the sandstone. So you can see that it really is compressed sand. Now between them, and this is very important, I want you to know I am not mocking scientists here, I want you to really hear this. Between them what is what's known as the Great Unconformity. Scientists tell us that between the Tapete strata, which is somewhere around 500 million years old, and the Nice, which is 1.75 billion year olds, which leaves scientists with a 1.2 billion year gap of missing history, modern scientists openly admit that they have no plausible explanation for this gap in time. By their own admission. Not, let's look at the data! Not, let's rethink it. We don't know. Really? So this layer here is 500 million years old. I'm good. I'll go. I can go with it. I'm not one of those guys who's, who's so anal he can't possibly even go there with his opponent for a moment. All right, you got me. 500 million years, right on. This layer here that's slanted and tilted butts right up to it. There is no surface space in between it. It is one layer sitting atop another layer. This stuff is 1.75 billion years old. What happened for 1.2 billion years? Nobody knows? Nobody knows. Are we really sure that there was 1.2 billion years of time between them? Now, why do they call it the Great Unconformity? It's good for you to know that. Because underneath the Tapete sandstone, our first layer of flood strata, is slanted rock. Scientists know this. It is, physiologically speaking, different. It's not metamorphic rock. It has not been compressed. It has not been changed by extreme pressure and heat. That's what happens to metamorphic rock. It metamorphosizes. It changes. It goes from one thing to another thing. And so you've got a bunch of crystalline basement rocks that are all metamorphic. And then you've got sandstone, which is sedimentary, laid down, made up of sediment, sedimentary. The crystalline basement rocks are slilted, they're, they're slanted, they're on a tilt, whereas the horizontal layering of the Grand Canyon just sits one layer on top of another layer on top of another layer, and there is great unconformity between the two. You've got slanted, and on top of the slanted is horizontal. And scientists have no idea how to explain it. I got a great, I, I can explain it really quickly. It's called the flood. It's called the flood. 
the Grand Canyon shows the gradual layering of flood-deposited strata. And you wouldn't need 1.2 billion years. You'd only need 40 days. Based upon the biblical framework of Genesis 6 through 8, the account of the flood, we should expect to see the following evidence in the flood-deposited layers. Now look, this is good science. And there is good science among the young earth creationists. We're always told, well, that's just your faith. You put your Bible out front. You try and find all these different things. And no, that's not really true. You've got to realize, everyone on planet Earth is wearing a pair of these. Now, I wear them so that I can get back to 2020. Young people, your eyes will change too. <laughs> realize this. Everyone is looking through some colored pair of glasses. If you look through the world with anti-supernatural glasses, guess what you will see? A supernatural world. Anti-supernatural. You will not believe in miracles, the possibility of a transcendent creator who has made all things, who sustains all things, who loves us and cares for us. You will see none of those things. You will look for purely naturalistic explanations. If you look through the lens of Holy Scripture, you will see a different world. You will see a God who is there, a God who speaks, a God who is intimate, a God who loves the world so much that he gives his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What color glasses are you looking through? You see, if you look through one set of glasses and the facts don't line up, maybe it's time to go to the optometrist and change up your lens. Number one. If it is true that the layers of the Grand Canyon are flood-deposited strata, we should expect to see some things. Number one, we should expect to see marine fossils on the rock layers high above the continents. Why? Because this is an indication that the floodwaters were very violent in nature and that they covered all the mountains of the world, as Genesis says. Number two, that the sedimentary layers containing these marine fossils should stretch across the continents where the ocean waters originally deposited them. And guess what? Science has proven that the same strata sequence in the Grand Canyon is seen all around the world. America, mostly the Midwest because of topography and how we have a different kind of sea level structure, higher altitude, you can see it. You can see it because of the canyon cut it into it. You can see it in places in England, places in Africa places in New Zealand, places in the Himalayan mountains. The same rock strata, the same sequence, lines up around the world because the same layers were laid down at the same time. Number three, these rock layers, along with their fossils, should both signs and evidence of being rapidly buried. Now, this is an important one that no one wants to talk about, but it's ever so true. Do you know what happens to a fish when he dies and floats all the way down to the bottom of the ocean floor as he makes his descent? Do you know what happens to him? He just sits there for a million years and fossilizes, right? That's what my third grade science book says. Oh no, he's eaten by other things like shrimp and crabs and lobsters. He's attacked from his own internal organs as bacteria starts to break him down and before you know it, nothing's left. What happens to a deer in New Jersey when he gets hit by a car? They're everywhere. You can see them. You, see, you ever see a big fossilized deer on the side of the road? Mack truck imprint on the side of them? That, that one's from last year. I recognize the radial pattern on his head. What happens to that deer? Flies love dead deers. They love to lay eggs all over them, which hatch into maggots, which break that thing down and there's nothing left. Give enough exposure to the elements... Even their bones will break down and work their way into the soil and dissolve. So that leaves us with a serious dilemma. How were fossils made? Well, this is, again, this is good observation science. In the field of tautology, it is proven to us. If a dead organism cannot come into contact with highly mineralized water, it'll never fossilize. Ever. Because it's not the bones of the animal that remain. It's not the structure of the animal that remain. There, there's actually an exchange and there's a, the mineralization process gets in there and you have a mineralized hardening of a, of a once living animal that is now turned into rock. Think with me for a second. 
How would fossils come into contact with highly mineralized water? Hang on, I got it. I got another one. It would have happened in a flood model. It would have happened in a flood model. In spades. Number four. The whole sequence of layers should show evidence of having been deposited in rapid succession. And when you look in the canyon layer, that's just what you see. Flat layer, onto a flat layer, onto a flat layer, onto a flat layer, until you get down to the crystalline basement rocks, and they're tilted. It's just what you see. Is there any other way we can see it? Is there, is there anything else? Well, there is. Because the fossils really bear out some serious evidence. Nearly every layer above the Great Unconformity contains marine fossils. Every layer. Marine fossils of some sort. I found these two. I'm telling you, they're everywhere. Although we didn't find any on our trip, because probably we didn't look hard enough, the Bright Angel Shale and the Upper Tapeat Sandstone contain many trilobite fossils. We didn't find any, but they're in there. Now, why do I say the Upper Tapeats? Well, here's the best part. Tapeat Sandstone is many hundreds of feet deep. It's not just like a little layer. It's like this immense layer of sandstone, many hundreds of feet deep in sections. And so in the lower tapetes, you won't find trilobites, but in that same strata group, higher up in the tapetes, you can find trilobites, and higher up in the next layer, the Bright Angel Shale, you'll find more trilobite fossils. Uh, Something we did find were brachiopods. Now, they're very close to their cousin, the modern-day clam, which is going to bring me to my next slide in a second about living fossils. When you think, just what's a, what's a living fossil? Well, living fossils are fossils we found that are exactly unchanged and remain the same today. And we've got those. I found these two brachiopods on a side hike up one of the many canyon walls. These are both found in the red wall limestone. Now look, limestone-rich sand has a, a propensity to have great fossils because, again... What is limestone? Highly mineralized, isn't it? And there's your exchange. There's the mineral exchange to where you can get those marine fossils. If you haven't noticed yet, my good friends Rob and Denise Toth from Master Books are set up outside. Did anyone see that? See that? This is just one of the absolutely wonderful books they have there called Living Fossils. Now, if you're a reader, I really expect you to stop by and see what they have there. If you're not, in the name of Jesus, become one. Okay? Put down your smartphone and read a book. You'd be amazed. I know a lot of young people out there today haven't seen one of these things. Hang on, ready? Paper. <laughs> Pictures. You can probably get it online in an ebook format. Maybe. I don't know. Living fossils, guys. There are a lot of things that are right out there in our oceans today that are in the Grand Canyon. Something like crinoids. Crinoids are living fossils. When I say they're everywhere in the canyon, <laughs> They're everywhere in the canyon. We found them all over rocks, all over the riverbed. They're everywhere. They are fossils of, a, of about which 6,000 recognized species are still living to this day. They're commonly known as sea lilies because they resemble plants. In nature, they look like plants. And people have considered them plants, but they're definitely not a plant. They're definitely a living organism. They eat other, other micro, microbiotic things in the water, microscopic things. They, they're actually living plants. And we found them all over the place. Living fossils. Well, if they were buried 500 million years ago, have they lived for 500 million years and not even evolved a little? That seems to propose a problem in the evolutionary theory, doesn't it? Why haven't they changed? Why haven't they changed? <laughs> i got a theory about that. I'll tell you about it later. 
One of the other coolest things we found there were footprints in the sand. Now, not like that Jesus footprint in this sand poem you've you know, read about or found at Jesus' book and gift. I'm talking about literal fossilized footprints in sand strata rock. Does anyone find it interesting that we find fossilized footprints in one layer and then full body fossils in a higher level? Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Well, look, I'm here to answer your question. It makes sense only in a flood model. Animals struggling to tread water would have laid down footprints in one layer of strata, in one area of soft mud, and then been swept away by another wave and deposited into a different, higher layer. That's how you can have full footprints, one layer down, and then the next layer above it, full-body animals that line up. Lizard footprints in the sand. Dr. John Whitmore kept correcting me. It's a tetrapod. Okay? I kept calling these lizard footprints. He's like, well, it was a tetrapod. Okay, but lizards have four feet. It was a tetrapod. So let me, one of my mentors, it was a tetrapod, some kind of four-footed animal laid down these prints. And you can actually, they look like very scurrying prints, and then they disappear. And then a couple feet down the rock again, you've got these scurrying footprints, and then they disappear. Which is exactly what would happen in undulating waters. Any animal that would have been trapped in receding and moving and pulsating waters. It's very interesting. Now, some people think that's really far-fetched. But for me, the evidence is overwhelming. Why footprints in this layer and then the animals that match them in this layer? So 250 million years ago, their ancestors laid down these footprints and then their ancestors got buried. 250 million years ago, huh? That's a long, that's a long time in the uniformitarian mind scheme to last because outside of creation science, you've got evolution, which says that these layers were laid down grain of sand upon grain of sand very slowly, very gradually over millions of years. Billions of years. Has anyone ever seen a footprint last for billions of years? Really? I saw you, you guys made some footprints out there today. They're probably already gone. The deacons in this church, man, they are clean. <laughs> Things are swept away, gone, not happening. Footprints don't last for thousands of years, certainly not millions of years, and they would never last for billions of years. They just wouldn't. Footprints would only show the evidence of something being rapidly buried. That's the only way you can get a fossilized footprint. If it's rapidly, catastrophically buried. Now remember, again, it's got to come into contact with something highly mineralized, which the Coconino sandstone is. It's mineral, limestone. This is not only the case with small animals, but with much larger animals as well. So not just little animals. We found really big animal tracks, and then the full-bodied animal above that. Now, this is a slightly larger animal. No one can identify what it is, but you can see there that the claw prints are very distinguishable. I mean, they're not hard to see at all. Again, does anyone notice that hand? I like touching stuff, if, if you don't know me. These are the Coconito sandstone tracks uh, this is really unfortunate that this fossilized track, this, this whole big rock here, is actually sitting right above a massive boulder, and, and scientists fear that any day now a good thunderstorm is going to come through and probably hit this rock and blow it into a thousand pieces. But according to park, park regulations and law, you can't move things. It's a national park, you have to leave it. So what's upsetting about this piece of fossilized evidence here is that it's, it's about to probably be lost to us. And so you may never see these tracks in person. Aren't you glad I took a picture? (laughs) Trilobite tracks. Now, one thing we did find were trilobite tracks. Who knows what a trilobite is? No one knows what a trilobite is? People in the back know what trilobites are. They're not putting their hands up because I know those people. (laughs) 
Uh, trilobites are technically an arthropod. They're, they're like a crustacean, and, and science says you know they've been gone for billions of years, but they have actually recently discovered animals that are very much like trilobites living, I think, in Argentina. Very similar to this animal, although not exactly the same. So I would even classify trilobites as a living fossil because they have something very close in body form existing today. Now, scientists have found many trilobite tracks in the lower Tapete sandstone, but their bodies are only found in the Bright Angel Shale and the upper Tapete sandstone. And so I ask, shouldn't these animals have been buried within a couple of feet or perhaps next to their tracks? Why do we find their tracks 250 feet down in the strata? And then we can find their body 250 feet above their tracks and then 500 feet above up in the Bright Angel Shale. I just think, shouldn't an animal be buried right next to where he left his tracks? And that's not the case. We find the tracks low in the strata, and then we find the trilobites up in the next layers of strata. Why? Shouldn't they be next to each other? I think they should be next to each other. Can anyone figure out how the red wall limestone received its name? Quick show of hands, anyone? Well, if you guess because it's red, then you're correct. Very good for all you guessers. But here's a more interesting fact. Are you ready? It's going to blow your minds. It's not really red. It's not. If you take a chipping hammer and smack away a little bit of it, it's bright white. But check this out. There's a high layer of phosphorus and copper in the canyon. And what it does is it actually adheres itself to the red wall limestone, and it creates a red varnish. And so when the limestone breaks off, it's white, and it's got this little glazed front, this little red front. Very interesting. I just, I know that's not interesting to most people, but I just thought that was so cool. Why do I think it's so cool? I, I think it's cool because the red wall limestone is one of the most significant pieces of young earth creation strata in the entire Grand Canyon. I'm going to tell you why. There is a seven-foot-thick bed of the red wall limestone that stretches at least 180 miles throughout the Grand Canyon. Now, look, that's 180 miles, right, guys? On not one side of the canyon, but on both sides of the canyon. So, look, the, the red wall limestone is many hundreds of feet thick, but there's a seven-foot-thick bed within the red wall limestone, and it contains... Nautiloid. What are nautiloids? Nautiloids are a squid-like animal. Um, they, they range from being four or five, six inches to many, many feet, five, six, seven feet long. So there's, there's a, they're like modern-day squid. Squid can be very small. Squid can be ginormous. Giant squid are absolutely huge. And so they're actually found at a rate of two nautiloids per 10 square feet. Small and large are found together, and most of them are pointing in the same direction, which shows that this was a living congregation. This was a living population of animals, all swimming in the same direction. The conservative estimate of nautiloid fossils within the Grand Canyon is thought to be one billion <laughs> nautiloids. Everyone's like going, yeah, awesome. One billion squid swimming in the same direction, fossilized for us to see. In contrast, and here's the important thing, the crinoids and the other marine fossils found in the red wall are broken and smashed into tiny little pieces. Well, why is that? Well, a lot of things living on the bottom of the ocean floor would have been absolutely smashed to bits when the fountains of the deep broke forth. And so you'll find smashed bits of marine invertebrate, whereas living populations would have been swept in one direction and rapidly buried. So again, in a flood theory, it works just fine. Man, would you look at that rock-loving nerd. The red wall limestone strata is full of broken and jubbled marine fossils which appear to have been rapidly and catastrophically buried in lime-rich sand. I'm actually holding one down there. If you see that rock, there's a circle down there. Uh, that circle is actually a nautiloid, sheared in half. You can see the circle-like body on it. 
They look like, kind of like a cigar. But if you cut a cigar in half, you have a circle. So this fossil graveyard stretches halfway around the globe from the southwest U.S. through England and all the way to the Himalaya Mountains. That's where you can find nautiloid fossils. All the way around the globe, all in the same level of flood strata, all within lime rock. Isn't that amazing? See, it shows me that the effects of the flood were global and not local. So how and when could this all have happened? Trying to wrap this thing up for you guys. Well, one thing is sure. One thing is sure. The Colorado River did not slowly cut the canyon over millions of years. And that's still, I kid you not, that is still the number one theory in the evolutionary model. Anyone who believes this, in my opinion, should have no problem with miracles. Because rivers do not run uphill. And the Colorado headwaters are at a lower elevation than the canyon they supposedly cut through. You know what I mean by that? Colorado headwaters, Grand Canyon top. Has anyone ever seen a river do that? Please video it the next time it occurs. Because rivers only run downhill. How do we know this? Well, because that's how gravity makes them flow. Rivers do not run uphill. You see, if you believe this as your model, then you should have no problem with miracles. Because that, my friend, is a miracle. And here's a little secondary note for you that's not in the presentation. The Colorado River today is not cutting the canyon anymore. You know what it's doing now? Filling it in with sediment. That's diametrically opposed to a theory that says the Colorado River over billions of years slowly cut this canyon. Eh, nice try. Survey says the Colorado River is filling the canyon in with sand. The Colorado River is shrinking the Grand Canyon about a quarter of an inch every year. New beaches are being formed every year. Now, humongous storm systems come through and blow some of that out, but still, it is filling in the canyon. It's not cutting it, guys. It's filling it in. As a matter of fact, the big, huge lake below, the, the runoff below, is actually getting filled in at a scary rate. It's going, to be fill, it's going to be filled with sand way before they thought it would because they had no idea how much sediment is actually carried by a river system of this size. So that's not good science. Colorado's not cutting, it's filling. Many believe the Grand Canyon to be a washed out spillway, a remnant from the flood. That's my theory, that's what I believe. I hold to that. Here's a little flood theory geology for you guys. It is believed that after the flood waters receded, some waters became trapped behind natural land masses. So where you would have a dip or a valley, you could get water trapped. Matter of fact, to this day, I believe the Great Lakes are nothing more than flood water. Flood waters that got trapped on our continent. Because you don't find lakes their size anywhere else in America. And where are they? They're all chained. They're all part of a huge system. I think they're flood waters. They got trapped behind natural land masses. Now look, we also believe in a flood model that there would have been changed weather patterns upon the earth after the flood. That could have meant a lot of more lightning storms, more rain, m you know, more torrential hurricanes and things of that nature. And in fact, there are what looks like two empty bodies of water in the desert. One in Utah and one in Arizona. One they call Grand Lake, the other they call Hopi Lake. They're named. Scientists have given them name. You can still see them. You can visit these places. And they look like empty bodied out waterways. They look like empty lakes. I'm told from an airplane, it looks just like that. Just like an emptied out spillway. Anyone who's ever seen a dam flow, a dam fail, how the flows that are created, know just how damaging an effect they can have. Things that, things that breach a dam do so in, in an absolutely scary way. It's just catastrophic and it's quick. And so here is a picture of Hopi Lake from the center of Hopi Lake. You look around and it's walls everywhere and there's all kinds of things like salt deposits and different mineral deposits. It's believed that there were two huge lakes out there. And it's been estimated that Grand Lake and Hopi Lake together may have contained over 300, I'm sorry, 3,000 cubic miles of water, which is about three times the amount that Lake Michigan would hold. So three times that which Lake Michigan holds. Remember, much of the Colorado Plateau, which the Grand Canyon is part of, is made up of limestone. How many layers of that Grand Canyon are limestone? More than a couple. 
more than a couple. And water simply loves to eat limestone. It can do so very rapidly. So what's believed? It's believed that as these lakes filled up more and more, one part of the lake would have become very weakened. Maybe it was too wet, too muddy. And as a little bit of water washed over it, boom, you get a spillway. And it pours all the way through. It's believed a couple years later, or who knows, could have been 50, 60, 70 years later, the next lake would have done the same thing and drained out, and it just would have followed the other channel, and that's how you get such a huge pattern and why there are so many twists and turns in the canyon itself. Last piece of evidence I want to look at, and I kid you not, we really are almost, almost done, is the recent lava flows. Now, who here knew that there were actually volcanoes in the Grand Canyon? There are volcanoes in the Grand Canyon. I have seen them. There is the remnant of eight dead volcanoes on the western rim. Very awesome. We know that several volcanoes erupted on the canyon, and we know that because the volcanic basalts, and that's, that's lava, are found on and along the western canyon walls, and they flow all the way down. Uh, in fact, there are still remnants of the dead volcanoes on the upper and western rim of the Grand Canyon. Uh, when I took a helicopter out of the canyon, which was cool and scary at the same time, they fly you right over the dead domes. They fly you right over the volcanoes so that you can see them. Uh, why is this piece of geological evidence so important? You're, you're probably thinking, what's so important about river basalts? Well, this is why. When the river basalts were dated, along with the Cardenas basalts, that's from the crystalline basement, that's the original tilted, tilted strata below the tapetes, the Cardenas was dated at 1.2 billion years old, whereas the riverside basalts measured 1.1 billion years old. So now let me quickly explain this. Below the flood strata, the Cardenas basalt was dated at 1.2 billion the lava flows that flow all the way down the Grand Canyon dated at 1.1 billion. Does anyone see a problem? Anyone see a problem? Here's just a, there's a quick picture of... I'm going to go back to that. It's a cool picture. Maybe I don't want to go back. <laughs> there's some basalt right there. You can actually see it. The, the black stuff there, that's actually volcanic rock. The Cardenas basalt was supposed to be billions of years old, whereas the Riverside basalts should only be about 600 million years younger as they run down and over the oldest layers of the Grand Canyon. Do you see a problem now? How can something that should be many millions of years... Not saying millions isn't a small period of time either, guys. Millions is ginormous. Something should be millions of years of difference, rated at 1.2 billion, and the other ones were rated at 1.1 billion. Now look... The riverside basalts that flow down the layers logically, logically cannot be only 100 million years younger if the oldest layers of the canyon are 550 million years old and the riverside basalts flows are on top of all of the canyon layers. You understand what I mean by that? It is logically impossible. This is not some kind of bent I have on being a young earth creationist. This is not because I hate scientists. I don't hate scientists. I really, I love scientists because they're people and we're all created in the image of God. That's what the Bible says. And I love science. I mean, I really love science. But this is a logical fallacy. It cannot be. It's only logical to conclude. Now look, I'm not trying to date these rocks. I'm telling you this much. It is only logical to conclude that the riverside basalts are younger than the youngest layers of the canyon. Therefore, there is something drastically wrong with the rubidium-strontium dating method. That's my point. The methods that modern science are using are absolutely positively wrong. Empirically. They can't be right. When they did, they did the same thing with the volcanic explosion that happened at Mount St. Helens. And you know what they did with those rocks? They dated at 500 million years old. Really? That, that happened in the 80s. Again, do you see a problem? The 1980s, that's when that volcano exploded, when I was a little kid. There's something wrong with the dating methods. We're not dating the rocks right, guys. They're not doing it properly. It's the only reason. That's the only way it can really make any sense. And so there's a lot of good evidence. 
I think if one uses the biblical framework, then one will clearly see that we have very good reasons for taking the Bible literally. Amen? Reading it seriously. Reading it. Reading what it says. Remember, whatever colored glasses you look through are sure to color your view. I want you to know this, guys, and especially young people here today. Your worldview affects everything. Your eyes are the window to your soul. I beg you in the name of Jesus, watch what you let into your body through your eyes and through your ears and through your senses. Be careful. Remember, gigo. Gigo is a little word my father used to like to yell at me when I was a little kid. One day he explained it. G-I-G-O. Garbage in, garbage out. It's very true. You hear nutritionists say it all the time. You are what you eat. That's not only true physically. That's true spiritually. You are what you eat. Science proclaims that virgins do not conceive and that dead men do not rise from the grave. That's what science says. The Bible says both of these things are possible with God. What else does the Bible say? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I pray that you guys were blessed by this presentation. I did go long as I promised I would. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father.